I'm having a goddamn blast on tour with this Big Mouth and a Small Town tour. So I've added some dates and wanted to let you know where I'm headed next. Uh, yeah, March 14th, I will be in Lakeside, Arizona. And then the 15th and 16th, I'm finally coming to Tucson. So if you're in Tucson, I'm coming to Laughs Comedy Cafe. Get your tickets. We're going to have a good time. My good friend Noah Koffer will be featuring at those shows. He'll also be with me the following weekend when I come to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dr. Grins, I cannot wait to see you guys again. Those are always some of my favorite shows, and I'm sure this year will be no exception. And then I am headed up to my home state of Alaska for the Alaska Before You Die Fest. Anchorage, you better not fucking sit on these tickets. They're going fast. There's a few left. Uh, April 5th, I will be doing shows at the Gumbo House. It's downtown. I'm doing an early and a late show, one night only. It's an intimate venue, so tickets are limited. It's going to be out of control. If you've come to my show at Coots before, you know how fun they are. This venue is so much better for comedy. I can't even explain it. Just get fucking tickets. These shows are going to be wild. And then on the 6th, I'm headed down to Homer. Homer, Alaska. I am coming, performing there for the first time. Alice's Champagne Palace. And then on the 7th, I will be in Seward, Alaska. So Anchorage, Homer, Seward. We're having a goddamn good time. I'm going to come kill at all those shows because I'm a fucking Alaskan assassin. Am I sorry I said that? I don't know. Listen. Dayton, Kentucky, 12th of April. If you are in the Cincinnati-ish area, Dayton, Ohio, Dayton, Kentucky, this is your chance to see me at a really cool new venue called the Commonwealth Sanctuary. And then I am headed to Portland, May 3rd. I'm headlining the Rip City Comedy Festival. I will be at McMenamin's Mission Theater. You guys, this is a cool theater. We want it to be packed out because, of course I want it to be packed out, but also like, Let's have a goddamn good time in this nice, beautiful theater. So come to that. It's going to be a hell of a time. I can't wait to come back to Portland. And then Wisconsin. I'm headed back your way. But this time I'm coming to Janesville, May 17th and 18th. Green Bay on the 19th. And then what up, Florida? St. Pete, Tampa. I'm coming your way. Uh, Tampa, I will be there June 2nd. And St. Pete, um, they're ahead of that, uh, May 31st. Tampa, I'm at Side Splitters. And if you go to the links in all of my bios or go to their website to get tickets, for a limited time, you can use the code JMS and get $5 off tickets. And wherever you are, I'm trying to get people to buy tickets early instead of waiting to the last minute and making me panic so that if it is going to sell out, it sells out faster so that I know that, the club knows that, maybe we can add a second show. Just FYI, that helps every artist that you're a fan of. So if you can ever buy ASAP, go ahead and do that. Uh, So that's your incentive to buy early in Tampa. And uh, uh, I'll be adding more dates soon. If you did not hear your town, but you want me to come there, head over to my Instagram, instagram.com slash jmscomedy or just at jmscomedy if you're using the app like most of us. Uh, click the link in my bio, join my email list. That lets me know where you guys are so I know what areas want to come see me. Uh, so do that. I can't wait to get to more cities. I'm having so much fucking fun on the road. You guys have been amazing. People have been buying merch. These audiences have been out of control, good, just electric, laughing, having a blast. And I know all these upcoming shows are going to be no exception. So I will see you there jmscomedy.com slash shows to get your tickets. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. We're going to have a fucking good time either way. So thanks for listening to this little promo. Enjoy this episode. Ta-ta, idiots. 
What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. What kind of ignorant shit is that? At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. You idiot, you fool! Hey, dummy! This is the Ignorance is Blessed podcast. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Hey idiots, welcome back to Ignorance is Blessed, the podcast that attempts to overcome ignorance, mostly by asking ignorant questions with me, Jessica Michelle Singleton. I'm a comedian, I'm your host, I'm an idiot. I don't know anything, I'm a fucking moron, that's why we're here, to get answers to my ignorant questions, your ignorant questions, just to learn and grow and maybe have some laughs along the way, because I fucking, what else are we going to do at this point? Sometimes all you can do is laugh. If you are new to the podcast, first of all, thank you for giving me a shot. I really appreciate that. I hope you enjoy what I'm putting out in these interviews. I would love it if you would hit that subscribe button and give me a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, whether it's iTunes or somewhere else. It helps. It helps other people find the podcast so they can get answers to their ignorant questions. And thank you to everyone who has already done that. I, I greatly appreciate it. I can't, I can't explain much it means to me now more than ever uh, popular phrase from every commercial on your television but i genuinely mean it uh speaking of supporting the podcast shout out to my best idiots forever gene and kathy my uh, top level patron people uh if you want to join the patreon and support the podcast get some more bonus stuff hang out with us on wednesdays patreon.com slash ignorance is blessed Thank you to all the new patrons, and uh, that has been such a huge help. That little bump has been very helpful, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out more more fun content to put over there, because right now my podcasts are the only thing I can think of that putting energy into might potentially help me survive, because stand-up seems like a nightmare right now. Going back to that seems, I don't know, far out in a way that is going to be lucrative that's neither here nor there. Uh, that is something for me to deal with. Let's get to what is here. This week's episode, you guys, okay, the other thing about Patreon is that I only put out the first hour of episodes uh, for free, and you get the rest of it as bonus content uncut without all this, you know, shit up front of me blabbing about life. You just get straight into the episode. And this particular episode is over two hours long because the guest is fucking incredible. So I don't know if you've got a dollar to spare to sign up. It's, I highly recommend heading over there and joining the Patreon to hear the rest of this. Cause he just had so much cool shit to tell me. And it was such an interesting conversation. I learned so much and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So if you want to hear the rest of the hour, you know, head over to patreon.com slash ignorance is blessed, but the first hour is great as well. So if you just want the free stuff, I'm not going to hold it up any longer. Um, my guest this week, he's an incredible artist and he is a peer supporter through NAMI, uh, which we'll learn about in the podcast and, uh, just an incredible guy came on and talked to me about mental health and, and his own journey and how he's helping other people on their journey. And it's great. So this is Micah Pearson. You're going to love him. He is an absolute gem. No further ado. Please enjoy Micah Pearson. 
Hey, idiots. I'm back. I'm here with Micah Pearson. Hi, Micah. First of all, thank you for joining me. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm happy to have you. For those who don't know, Micah is an incredible artist. I mean, you kind of, you're, you're got your toe in a little bit of everything. You illustrate, you write public speaking and how you found me was mental health advocacy. Cause I put out a, a call and this is one of those times that social media was helpful instead of so hurtful. <laughs> Especially since I deleted my Twitter account, somebody had to tell me about you. So. Oh my gosh. I know. I, I, I've been very thankful that I've had a few people who saw the tweet, told someone, that person told someone. So how you hope that social media will work instead of, you know, scraping up a picture of you, like passed out drunk in college from 10 years ago. And you're like, that's, Oh, there's a dick on my head or whatever. Um, just me. I really do hate that when that happens. It keeps happening to me. Um, <laughs> um, well, thanks for joining me. It's, I'm trying to figure out where to start because there's so much going on. And obviously the, the core of what I want to talk to you about is your work in mental health, your mental health journey. But I've been checking out your work and it's just really cool. I was looking at your website, all the art that you do. Um, is that okay? Are you painting? I was looking at a lot of your, the stuff you have posted on your website. What is your, your normal medium? So I do a little bit of everything. Uh, okay. One of the, and fortunately uh, it's all inextricably tied with my mental health. So uh, <gasps> when I went to the Corcoran school of art and design or Corcoran college of art and design, I had a super fun psychotic episode, which oh, forced no. me to dro drop out. Uh, but right before I did uh, one of my uh, colleague co-students, you know, I've been out of college long enough and I wasn't there long enough to even know what we call students. Co no students. She, she was a, a co-ed. So yes, <laughs> uh, the, the, um, anyway, she handed me this book, uh, saying, Hey, there's this new program out this thing that, uh, you might find interesting because we can tell you're really frustrated with your pencils. You're really frustrated with your photography. You're not getting what you're looking for. Have you heard of this new thing, brand new thing called Photoshop? <laughs> oh, so I shit. just dated myself a lot. Oh, shit. <laughs> because it was brand new at the time. And since I was not in any way, shape or form having a psychosis induced, uh, a manic induced psychosis, I <laughs> dropped out of school immediately and took my tuition and built a computer to teach myself Photoshop. So wow. uh, sight gags work so well on podcast and radio. I'm holding <laughs> up uh, so you can see a tablet. It's a, it's called a Wacom tablet. And it looks like a giant iPad for the This will be, we'll put this on YouTube too. But for those just listening, just so you know. Yeah. And so it's a Wacom tablet. Uh, I, I don't, I do have a pressure sensitive screen that I can paint onto as well. Like the Cintiqs that you see the, uh, you know, wet digital people do on those DVD wow. features. But, uh, and then of course there's the pen. So I do paint uh, by hand uh, a lot of stuff, but I also use photo manipulation, like on some of those planets that I've painted. That's literally just my sidewalk outside. Uh, Whoa. Work done on it. And I also use a program called Daz Studio because it's free uh, <laughs> to do uh, my 3D figure stuff. So, uh, you know, so I'll render out a model uh, in 3D. 
and I usually do it in neutral lighting. So if you're any of your listeners or photography people, they'll, it'll be like a, an entirely flat lit set that wow. I render the uh, model out so I can paint the light in uh, because I like to have that kind of control. I'm not a control freak at all. No. No. Um, no, no. I, I feel like, and I'm someone who would love to be good at any type of visual art. Uh, you have to have some need to control with art. I feel like if you're getting deep into it, and I think that's, I imagine that's why people get so frustrated. I guess that's why I fell in love with, uh, with Photoshop so much because I have the magic undo button. So I can uh, just like be like, Oh, that didn't work. Oh God. And I can do that like 10 hours after late I started. Like I can go back to a step 15 hours ago and be like, Oh, this is where I went wrong. That makes so much sense. Cause obviously anyone who's ever, you know, painted on canvas or drawn by hand knows that that is far from the case that you're just like, well, it's fucked. <laughs> I have an entire portfolio of stuff from my, from my college years that I said that out loud in class. So. <laughs> Man. Well, I, let's, that's so, God, I mean, I, I relate to that on such a deep level. Um, yes. Fucked power. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about what happened. So you were going to a, a college for art. And then what was this experience like for you? Where you, um, did you recognize, did someone recognize immediately what was going on? How did you realize that you were having a psychotic break? Because I know that can be hard to, for an individual to realize what's going on when they're in it. So, so to, to clarify for people who are listening, I live with bipolar disorder, type one, rapid cycling with psychotic features, post-traumatic stress disorder, and attention deficit hyperactive disorder with a dash of generalized anxiety disorder for seasoning. Uh, it's Fun. that extra spice of my life. And <laughs> so uh, I've, I'm very fortunate in the fact that I manifested my conditions when I was super early. So like when I say super early, I mean, I was four. When wow. I started experiencing some of the early stages of psychosis and uh, and stuff, and so, and some of it was normalized because my parents just thought I was an odd kid. But also, a lot of it was my parents going to my doctors and going like, "Yeah, our our five year old is saying he wants to die, and we don't <laughs> think that's you know." right. And the doctors are like, Oh, it's fine. It's okay. You can't have mental health conditions like that, that young. Uh, I did mention I'm, I'm kind of old. So back in the early nineties and late eighties, early nineties, the science of the day said that I could not be experiencing what I was experiencing. So they just the were like, that's were like, not a yeah, thing. Okay. Yeah. Walk it's, it off. It's not a thing. <laughs> so yeah, take a salt tablet. But uh, the, uh, the, the, the thing was, is that by the time I had gotten to college, I had had an entire high school of just devolving mental health. Like just, mm. I, I, I was, I was sent to a, uh, okay, I am a child of economic privilege. We are not even going to pretend that is not part of my story. So I was, it's important to, to a, insert. Yeah. Yeah. I was sent to a muckety muck high hoity toity, uh, high school, private school specifically because I was starting to become scary in public school. Mm. Uh, and my brother went to the public school that I would have gone to and was like, 
we don't know what's up with my little brother, but he has a temper problem and will step to anybody. And if he goes to this school, they will kill him. Yeah. So, so it was like, like oh. okay, for your yeah. safety, we need to put you where there's less people who are going to try to match your temper and yeah, just immediately shoot you in the face because you don't know when to shut up. And so <laughs> like, and so I went to this high school and what we didn't know was that I was slowly but surely unraveling into psychosis. Like, mm. so over the course of my entire high school, uh, I was, I was, uh, I, I was 15 when I started hearing voices. Oh, and wow. so, and, and it, weirdly enough, it was that moment when I realized that it might actually be me. Up until that point, I was the awesome arbiter and protector of the gateway to the underworld that was my house. Uh, so I was protecting all of you from, uh, from the denizens of the underworld that lived in my home. So I was fighting demons. I was keeping them from coming through my mirrors. Uh, I was, uh, I was, uh, I would, I would have these, what are, you know, called hypnagogic hallucinations, but basically I was dreaming while I was awake or I was not a hundred percent awake, but I was still dreaming. And so like my nightmares, which I've had ever since I was a little kid would happen in my bedroom. And, wow. and so the severed clown head, that was a whirly gig of wacky fun. The <laughs> demon girl standing at the foot of my bed, also fun. Uh, but my parents thought these were just dreams. So they were just like, okay, Micah, the house isn't haunted. And, and, but that was the one that made the most sense. So like all this didn't start until we moved to this really old house. Oh, clearly. Yeah. So you had a thing to point to. And especially if you're at a young age where, you know, we all read scary stories, goosebumps, whatever, watch scary movies. You now have at, at that moment go, well, it all started happening here. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe it's just haunted. That's the thing. Like all delusions start with something logical. Yeah. So they, they, they start with something basic. And so in the case of the things coming out of the mirrors, my parents gave me this awesome time life book series. Wow. I just keep getting older the more I talk. <laughs> anyway, so the, uh, my parents gave me this awesome time life book series called the enchanted world where, uh, they told you about world mythologies, but pretended they were real. It was for kids. So it had high-end illustrations, really wow. beautiful paintings, but they were edited in such a way that everything you're reading is real. And I read about doppelgangers. I read about the beings that you saw in the mirrors that were uh, portents of your death or a death of a loved one. And I was like, wow. well, if you can see a copy of yourself and it's out to get you, then what if there's a whole universe of people on the other side of the mirror that are trying to come out? And so wow. I would just take all the mirrors off the walls and turn them towards the wall. I would close <gasps> all the bathroom doors. And every night my parents came home to the same picture. All the mirrors taken down off the walls, all the doors closed and sealed tight. A couple of times there were towels shoved underneath the doors to keep the spirits from coming. And yeah. my parents were just like, Micah gets creeped out in the dark. He doesn't like... Yeah, I, like I, he just must be afraid of the dark. I mean, that's well, what you I, do, I think, as a parent. You go, well, bad dreams. You know, because you don't hear a lot about, you know, people don't openly talk about psychosis and, and how it manifests. And it can manifest so differently from person to person. So you're right. not going to jump. No, most people wouldn't jump to, well, obviously he's having a psychotic break or. Nope. My parents would always talk about my wild mood swings. They talked about the fact that I would uh, overnight, apparently. So in a really funny story, I, my grandfather died the day I met him. 
Uh, Haunting. Oh, that is not, that doesn't help with what you're going through. Well, like I said, my switch was flipped early. So I was four years old. Uh, It was my brother's birthday. My grandmother's, my brother and my grandmother shared a birthday. We didn't really talk to my grandparents all that much. So we had like a joint birthday celebration and also a family repatching. And so this guy came in and he walked in, took off his hat, handed me his coat, gave me a present for me on my brother's birthday. So I was like, I don't know who you are, but you're pretty cool. And, and I'm four, like I said, I'm four years old. I have no idea who these people are. And he walks into the house, steps down, goes over to the couch, sits down, has a glass of wine. My mom, oh no, sorry. My mom asked him if he wanted a glass of wine. And he said he did. He popped an hors d'oeuvre in his mouth, made some choking noises and fell over dead. Now, the only, this has no emotional impact on me. I'm four. I don't even know this person. No, but there goes the trauma in your brain. Like, boop, 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 boop. Like, but that's I'm gonna... 43 now, and I remember this every step of it. And my wow. parents tell me that literally overnight, my favorite color went from being green to black. I started drawing and painting severed heads. I got weird. I started expressing ideations about wanting to hurt myself. I started... And they were like, oh no, he's goth. <sighs> yeah, a goth four-year-old. So, you know... I, <laughs> wow. Uh, what so, a... I mean... Yeah. Uh, understandably so. It's Yeah, my parents experience. were like, this isn't normal. So... And yeah. We hate the word normal in my community, but we... <laughs> my parents were like, this isn't normal. And so... But my doctors, of course, were like, oh, he's fine. He's okay. He's and just eccentric. Was, yeah. And they said I had ADD. So they gave me medicine for it. And the problem was that it worked. The <laughs> problem was, the reason why I say the problem was that it worked was because uh, if you give stimulant-based ADHD meds to a person with a mood, like a class, what they used to call class two mood disorders, um, it can have bad effects. Like maybe really? making you want to kill people or like, you know, hear voices or have delusions that people are in your mirrors trying to get out. See, we, we actually were able to trace all the psychosis back to when I started taking the med. Oh, wow. So I was on it for 10 years. It was this stimulant you were taking for, you know, to address your ADHD was actually feeding yeah. the other and, shit. And we didn't realize how I didn't realize that I was, um, Okay. For your listeners, I never use this language because people who live with mental health conditions fucking hate this language. But I want to be very clear about it. Yeah. When I was a kid, I, it was when I heard my mom calling me in another section of the house. And I went running around the house looking for her and then noticed I was in an empty house because all the cars were gone. Um, that's when I realized that, oh, shit, I might be the crazy one. And oh, because so, you were, were certain that you had heard her. I, I, I could still hear her. Every time, I, every time I went to one room of the house, I heard her in a different room. And I kept going through all the different ha- rooms of the house. And, and I, that happened and you went, oh, this might actually be like a serious something's going this, on. This might be me. So I did the only logical thing. I kept it to myself. So, I never told a soul. <laughs> I never told a soul until I was about 22. Uh, and then I was like, so some shit's gone down and I need some help. And they were like, and this new doctor that I was trying out um, was like, have you ever considered that you might have bipolar disorder? And I was like, what's that? He said, manic depression. I said, I knew it. Because when I was nine, I, I told my psychologist that I thought I had manic depression. God, I I read, a, I read a pamphlet that said all this stuff about manic depression. And I was like, oh, hey, 
that, 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 that's, that's me. And of course, the psychologist was like, I'm the psychologist. You're nine. And yet he's like, you're too young to have it. He just said that was, that was. Yeah. Kids don't get that. Quit being a hypochondriac. <laughs> yep. He's a really good psychologist, but he made the wrong play on that one. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I think uh, every, everyone in any type of medical field, mental health or, or otherwise, I think I want to believe for the most part, want to help people. But if the frame of reference, frame of education work you've been given says that just doesn't happen. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I understand, for better or worse, why someone would go, well, I could either say this is wrong and that it doesn't happen because that's what history has told us, or go, this child is bipolar and risk my colleagues thinking I don't know how to do my job or fuck them up trying to address a thing that isn't what they have. A lot, of, a lot of providers today. So I'm a behavioral health provider now. Yes. Uh, and, and so uh, a lot of providers today still don't want to label children, not because they don't think the kids will have it, but they're still worried about the stigma the kids will face in the educational system. Uh, yeah. So, so they, they don't want to put a label on kids. Well, yeah, because it's, those labels really do cause such an impact, both from an, especially, I just can't imagine being a kid and having that, you know, on your school file, people are just gonna, because, you know, people who don't educate themselves about mental health, see a word, you know, bipolar, depressed, whatever, and immediately, oh, problem or whatever. And and that was the thing. Like even I told you, I I went to this hoity-toity school. It was really unnerving that they knew exactly who I was and everything about my reputation in public school. My first day of school, like all the teachers, they were like, oh yeah, we had a meeting about you. Like, and so, yeah. And so, and I wasn't experiencing paranoia or anything at the time at all. No. Yeah. You're like, thanks for inviting me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, but that's the thing. Like even without the label though, I had a reputation for unnerving and odd behavior and I was labeled a potential risk. Like they tried to put me in special ed because that's where they put the problem kids. Oh yeah. If you can't function like the cookie cutter of what they decided a good student looks like, 
there's something wrong with you, not the system we're in or what we know, go in this class with people with probably much different issues than everyone else, you know, cause it's, there's such an array of things. Uh, and uh, the way I deal with my condition, by the way, is by learning everything I can about the science. And so if I occasionally slip into uh, med speak, just virtually slap me and I will go back to normal speak. For sure. But, I'll try to hit but, you with like, hey, what the fuck does that mean? You know, like. So a lot of people confuse mental health conditions with cognitive disabilities, mm-hmm. which are we they're not. Uh, no. You know, so they hear that we have bipolar disorder. And note, by the way, I'm going to go back to something you said earlier. I am not bipolar and nobody is bipolar. You they live with bipolar, bipolar disorder. You have bipolar disorder. I apologize right, for so, that. If, I, if that's what I said, I, no, I apologize. No Thank you for that. That's, that. that's literally my job. So the, um, but the, uh, the, the thing is, is people hear like, oh, you have bipolar or my personal favorite. Oh, you have schizophrenia. You must be cognitively impaired. And I'm like, nah, you, most of the people I've met with schizophrenia could one guy in my peer support uh, training certification class. He was just randomly calculating the current distance to the moon and how long it would take to get there as a way to pass the time. So like it was, and he lives with schizophrenia. So like, yeah, was just, he was just bored and was like, I'm going to do upper level math for funsies. Relatable. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's so sad that people lump those together because yeah, I as well, some of the most brilliant people I've encountered live with, you know, a mental health condition or they struggle with mental illness. Um, It's like walking up to a blind person and screaming in their ear. Oh my God. I used to, I literally worked with blind and visually impaired people. I helped them um, gain employment. And I mean, the when I would be talking to some of these companies, because I helped, you know, make sure everything was accessible I mean, one woman once was like, well, you know, we could possibly hire this person, but I mean, we have a lot of stairs. And I was like, they, they, they have function of their legs. That's not a, they're just that's, blind. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's why they have the, the guides and, you know, the stick and the. Yeah. yeah. It's like they've, that's, yeah. it's just. People don't know, and they, especially with mental health, and that's, that sucks because then you're not weak. getting what you need. Yeah. Yeah, and they think we're weak. That's the other thing is that they, they think that because we have days where we're just like, I ain't getting out of bed. That's not a thing that's happening. Uh, or, and by days, I mean weeks or yeah. occasionally months. Months, so yeah. Like, yeah, so that, that somehow makes us weak. And let me tell you, I work with a lot of, so I'm what they call a peer support worker. So my job is to, uh, okay. So I'm a certified professional. Uh, I'd say basically on the same tier as a, as a, as a social worker. Uh, but I do actually, in my case, I do more therapeutic services and more forensic services. So I work in the criminal justice system, but, um, the, uh, but the, my job is to be able to relate to a person with a mental health condition or a substance abuse issue instead of going from book learning, uh, even though I have done a significant amount of that, the, uh, just want to throw that out there. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, it's my job to say, yo, I've been there. It's, yeah. it's, and because there's actually documented hard evidence that says that, uh, people engage with treatment and recovery 
more effectively when they're talking to someone who they feel has been through the thick of it. And so a lot of my job sometimes is to go down to the, okay, back when we were allowed outside, uh, uh, my job would be to go down to the local detention center and be like, yo, a couple of years ago, I was the one in the orange jumpsuit. So wow, with some work, you know, you can get to the side of the glass. That's and, so great that you're doing yeah, that. And that's part of my story is I was literally smuggled to New Mexico uh, in the in the dark of night because I had an open warrant for my arrest in Maryland. Uh, Whoa. I had some problems. And, um, and, oh, uh, man. and then it took me about a year to sort all that stuff out, which required driving back and forth to Maryland a lot which I'm in New Mexico now. So that's 2,200 miles each way. My God. <laughs> uh, and it was a fun four days each way. But uh, the, <laughs> the, yeah, the judge wouldn't release my bench warrant so I could fly back to deal with it. So I had to drive back there to deal with it. <laughs> so annoying. Uh, and so eventually we, we dealt with it with my attorney. One of my, again, economic privilege. Uh, I, my, one of my attorneys was just like, if he is what you think he is, he's New Mexico's problem now. So what if you just like let him go? And they gave me a suspended sentence. And the thing I like to remember, though, is that that judge looked at a guy who had never had a negative interaction with law enforcement aside from, let's just say, regular speeding tickets from the age of 17 up until, you know, 35. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I averaged one a year. We'll just, yeah. Okay. So, but the uh, but uh, without that, I never had a negative interaction with law enforcement. And this judge looked at me and said, "You're one of those bipolars. Who knows when you're going to pop off again?" So even Goodness. though the first offense and all this crap, let's go ahead and lock you up for eight and a half years. What? I would be getting out. Uh, I think this month. I think if uh, yeah. If, if, if that judge got his way for my first offense, I would be getting out this month. And I have to admit, as a, as a, as a I am an, uh, an incredibly light-skinned, biracial black man. But uh, when I saw I had a black judge, I have to admit, I was like, okay, there's at least that I don't have to worry about. Uh, I don't have to worry about that amount of prejudice coming at me. Uh, wow. And then he just called me a bipolar who was dangerous and needed to be locked up. One of those bipolars. Yeah, it was awesome. Oh, well, and that just speaks to, oh God, my mind is like, oh God. But like the, that stigma, which isn't even a thing I, I was thinking about in this moment, but how that bleeds over into like the criminal justice system. And that if we have these people in charge of, you know, judges, for instance, you know, sentencing people, determining guilt or whatever, who have a stigma of these mental health conditions. They're going I've to heard this more than once. Unfairly sentence people based on, you know, their false hey, perception of what that means. The, one of the first judges I ever worked with in a program that I helped build in this community, I need to be clear, I helped draft the legislation to get this program to this community. I helped build the program. And then the first judge we had on it threw me out of court twice because they didn't like, they didn't believe in peer support. And the second time she brought my, tr my personal treatment plan onto the court record. Uh, she tried to bring that onto the court record. And I was like, like as if to invalidate anything that you had to say. Right. I was like, I'm certified by the state to provide these services. I helped build this program. Uh, you know, I, you know, I, and you won't even let me sit in the hearing when we structured this program for the client to have a peer support worker there. So because 
all of this can be very scary for them. And the program that we are doing is, is all about diversion and all about treatment. So we're trying to make it as not scary as possible. But, you know, my job is to sit there and like make sure the person doesn't get terrified. So, wow. And that's uh, what, is that what peer support is basically is working with, what is peer support? <laughs> okay. Like, well, like I said, uh, so it, it, a lot of peer support workers, I, I'm a little, I'm a little different. I'm different. So we'll, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk about what peer support generally is. And then we'll talk a little bit about what I do and I'll be quick. Um, I can't help myself. I drank a cup of coffee. I'm going to be quick regardless. So oh, the, um, but I the, <laughs> the, uh, Peer support workers usually work in a spectrum of treatment with a therapist and a psychologist or psychiatrist or what have you. They'll work in it as part of a team. And like I said, their job is to basically relate to the client. So uh, in higher needs situations where the clients are actually being touched every day, like where they're getting med delivery or something like that in their home, um, that'll usually be with a peer support worker who does a one-on-one with them and just says, Hey, how you doing today, man? Like, let's see how you're doing. And we talk usually about, you know, how are they literally train us to, to give in a two second, two minute burst, like, oh, I remember when that was happening to me or a similar circumstance was happening to me so that we can relate. And then we move on to uh, trying to work through their treatment. And one of my favorite questions that we ask in that stage is, how's that working out for you? So like when, you know, if we have a client that is, you know, self-medicating with say like heroin or uh, with meth or something like that, and we can tell they're starting to think about uh, what they call, uh, was it five stages of change? And one of them is pre-contemplation, the first one. So that's when they're just starting to realize that maybe this is a lifestyle choice that isn't working out for them. Mm-hmm. And our job is not to judge them or grill them on it. Our job is actually to kind of lay the path in front of them and let them walk it themselves. But, wow. uh, but one of my favorite questions to ask is like, so how's that working out? For how's that working out for you? <laughs> you know, just, just to make them think, oh, it's really not. You yeah, know, like so, yeah, actually, not so good. Now that you bring it up, it seems yeah. to be not going so well. Well, and like one time, I was talking to a client who was clearly they call. I was on traveling in DC, and they called uh, the crisis line and got routed to me. And I was uh, I was talking to them, and they were talking about going to get spice, which I don't know if you have where you are. It's basically supposedly synthetic marijuana. It's not. It's okay. Like, I've heard of it. It's it's garbage. Uh, it, it is, uh, and he was talking about going to get some spice and I said, okay, so what, what need are you trying to fill right now? He's like, well, I'm just really stressed out, man. And I'm just, I'm really trying to like, I need to let go of all the stress that I have. And I'm like, all right, cool. So your spice dealer, does he deal weed too? You know, and I hate to sound like a narc, but, uh, the one one group of people who should really like take very careful, be very careful about using weed are people with serious mental illness because yeah. we react to it differently than just about everybody else. Absolutely. So I like, um, I'm as pro legalization as people can get, but I'm just like this one small population, which happens to be the population I serve. We have to be careful about it, but I'm trying to do harm reduction, take straight yeah. poison or do some weed that could do some damage that we can deal with later. And yeah. I'm like, well, if your spice dealer deals weed, well, you know, why not try that if you're looking to relax? You know, like, yeah. And so trying to do the harm reduction, but, or, you know, but he was like, no, I'm going to go for the spice. And I was like, I remembered that he had just gotten out of jail. 
and that his cousin had been killed by going to a spice dealer before. So I just said, hey, so what happened the last time you went to your spice dealer? That's all I said. I just said, hey, do you remember the last time you went? And he's like, yeah. And it's like, that didn't really work out, did it? And he said, nah. And so I was like, so maybe we can try a different angle. So like, wow. that, that's literally my job is to just be like, hey, maybe there's a better way. Yeah. But that, that, that was back before I started doing the criminal justice work. So that's a peer support worker in a nutshell. Okay. Non-judgmental, using their own experience with their own recovery to help people find their own path to recovery. Wow. There you go. That's great. So what I do is a little bit different. Um, so I'm focused more on policy. So I'm the chair of public policy for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, wow. The national board. I sit on the national board of NAMI. Uh, and I chair their public policy. So I focus mostly around legislative advocacy. So I, I, I try to get better laws passed for people with mental health conditions so they have better access to care. Uh, and um, so that's why I'm full of data and statistics. I love but, it. But the other thing that I do is I also use my experience inside the criminal justice system and how fun that was uh, to uh, work in the courts with mental health courts and uh, what's called assisted outpatient treatment team courts, which vary very much from county to county. I love our AOT program, but I know not all AOT programs are awesome and some of them are actually deeply problematic. So I'm just going to put that out there for people. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's basically court mandated outpatient treatment, but, okay. the, uh, but it's civil court, not criminal in our case. So if the person says, fuck you, I don't want to engage, we don't lock them up. Um, by the way, I never asked if it was okay for me to use the F word. I mean, it's my favorite word. Okay, cool. Use uh, any word you want on this podcast. Take that, FD, wait, FCC? Shit, I almost yeah, said FDA. Yeah, the FDA are the... Yeah, the <laughs> and take you too, FDA. Fuck you. Hey, uh, hey, I have friends who work for the FDA and they except are the those people. overburdened. They are the most overburdened government department I know. So I, as, I, I re they're the ones that take all the shit when you find out about a drug recall for yeah. some obvious stuff. And I feel so bad for them because... They have been defunded so much they can't do their jobs effectively a lot. That is um, so strenuous. My mom almost took a job with the FDA, which I was like, thank God she didn't. Not because there's anything wrong with the FDA, but it would have been in the same city I live in and I'm like too close. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what I do basically though is I, I work with people and I tell them like, you know, I, I, I work with people in the court. Uh, my job is to just be the guy who knows a guy. So like if somebody was like, can you engage them with the service? I'll be like, I got somebody. I'll call somebody. I'll make some calls. That's great. Uh, but 99% of my job is actually to educate Educate the uh, the attorneys and the judge. The, okay. Like my job is to basically be like, how here's how we can approach this situation. Maybe not constantly refer to their medications as drugs. You yeah. know, you know, maybe don't call them vagabonds if they're experiencing <laughs> chronic homelessness. You know, yeah. that sort of stuff. So that's that's my job. In a couple of cases, they'll just ask me like, like. How, what helped you when you were in a similar boat? So the, the fun part of my story um, is that luckily or not, pretty much anything that can happen to a person with a mental health condition, medication-wise, hospitalizations, criminalizations, victimization, abuse, all that fun stuff, that's part of my story. And so I can usually, like, if somebody pulls on a thread, I can go, oh, yep, I have a place I can relate there. Let's go ahead and, like, engage them and see if we can, you know, talk to them. 
Wow. Um, or I'll tell the judge, here's what helped me. So maybe take a different tack than you were planning, that sort of stuff. And fortunately, our new judge is awesome. Uh, she is super kind and amazing and very much reflective of most of the judiciary I've had the opportunity to work with is basically like kind, realizes that her system is not really set up for people like us and trying to do the best they can with what they got. Um, like when I got started doing legislative work, um, the, I went in ready to swing cause I had literally been out of jail for like less than six months. <laughs> and I was like, you're like, fuck all you people, you all suck. And then, you know, I attended this task force where the, um, our, our detention facilities were trying to figure out how to house people like me in the detention facilities. And the first thing I heard was like 10 wardens stand up and I'll go, we are not appropriate for these people. Like this is our place is not where people should go to heal. So, <laughs> so stop sending them to us because we're like the worst place for them. You mentioned wow. earlier statistics about how yeah. people are affected. You didn't quite get there, but you were, you were getting there, which was, they say like maybe one in, uh, according to NAMI statistics and the last research data, one in five Americans will experience uh, a serious mental health issue in their lifetime. Wow. So that's 20% of the population, right? Yeah. Okay. The last data I got from our local detention facilities in uh, Southern New Mexico was that they have a 53% population of people with mental health conditions and they all think they're being underreported. So like wow. literally every warden I've ever talked to and every person I work, I've talked to who uh, works in a psych unit for a detention facility of which there are many, because let's face it, those are our hospitals these days. Oh. Um, they, um, they all say we're under report. We're not getting an accurate count because people still don't want to report. So think about that. Though. Wow. More than half the population. And they still think they're getting under not getting all the numbers. So it's, I mean, that just speaks to how, wow. that Just that they're putting away people with mental health issues. Oh, hey, my heart. Black people are like 17% of the population of the country and still like, you know, I think uh, 60% of the population of detention facilities. It's, so it ain't just people with mental health issues. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, don't worry. We're, we cover all that too. Yeah, it's... <laughs> God, our... Oh, and what's hard is... It's been going on for so long like that... It, it seems like to me that at least a larger portion of the population is starting to open their eyes to this or starting to become aware of it. But thinking about the actionable going from being aware that there's a problem to what are the steps sorry, to correct? They're 38% of the national prison population. If I get okay. data, I like to make sure it's correct. Oh, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, some people, real quick, just some people never, never check. Some people, it seems like on Twitter, just make up data and they're like, I don't know where I got it. And then you never see them again. Um, <laughs> Is part of what you do somewhere in that middle area of we've recognized the problem. Let's take the steps to try to fix it, try to correct with like over prisoning of at least with the mental health community. I know it's obviously not, that's not the only community. Well, one of the only, one of the core frustrations I have is, you know, in our community here, we've been working on a, what's called a crisis triage center, which is, basically like a uh, 
emergency way station for people with mental health crises. Like, mm. what, you know, people go there if they think they're experiencing a crisis and we get to evaluate them real quick and determine, okay, do you need to go to the hospital? Do you just need to have an appointment scheduled with your provider the next day? Like, what, what can we do for you? Um, but during the, the debates and discussion about that, everybody kept talking about the danger of people with experiencing a mental health crisis, how we are dangerous. And they kept referring to us as a criminal justice issue. As a matter of fact, we built our CTC, um, Crisis Triage Center, we built that right next to our detention center, uh, like eight years ago. Oh, wow. It's been empty the entire time. But like, <laughs> but yeah, that, it, that's Ugh. a whole thing. That's a whole other thing. Local politics, man. Super fun. And, uh, but like they built it right next to the detention facility because they expected at the time that most people to be using it would actually be our police departments picking people up and dropping them off there. And so, and they were like, and if it is deemed not to be a mental health crisis, they could just walk them over to the detention facility right next door. So immediately they're thinking of law enforcement as the first responders for mental health issues. They like they designed this building as such eight years ago. And that's absolutely not what this should be. And yet, whenever you talk to policymakers, almost every time you talk to policymakers, they always focus on mental health as a public safety or criminal justice issue when it's it's in the name health. health. It's a health care issue. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they always talk about mental health differently than they talk about physical health, which oh, is weird. Absolutely. Because it is a physical thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, you I don't go to court. I mean, yeah, you don't go to court and have a judge be like, well, he did get the flu pretty bad a couple of years ago. So lock him up. Uh, Wow. It's God, that's just so much to digest with that. Yeah, I'm from D.C., so I talk a lot and I talk Mm. really fast. No, I'm the same way. Honestly, (laughs) normally I I literally for people who are listening, you can't see this. I literally have slow down tattooed on my hand. So it's I. I have eyes front tattooed on my arm and with dignity and grace all in my semicolon in Azia to remind me that moving to New Mexico saved my damn life and that I need to stop looking backwards and start, you know, focusing front. I love that. Uh, the semicolon thing was actually completely independent of that whole movement too. It was based off of something my dad said to me when I called him and uh, asked for some, some advice on whether or not I should kill somebody else or kill myself. Uh, um, wow. I was, I was moving and I was under a little bit of stress and I would be diagnosed with, men, with bipolar disorder, like almost immediately following this because it was ah. my dad who suggested that maybe I get some help. Um, but yeah, I called my dad cause I was moving and I was super stressed and I called him and I was like, Hey dad, I just need your help with a question. Yeah. Just, just, it's just a simple question. And for me, it was just a logic thing that I'm working through. I want to, I want to try out these new experiences and I want you to help me figure out which one. So should I take this truck and run somebody off the highway and see what it's like to kill somebody? Or should I take this truck and drive off the bridge and see what it's like to kill myself? And my dad is like the master of unflappable. He is just like, okay, so let's walk this through. He just actually, he, he, he saved my life by not reacting. Wow. So he was just like, so let's walk this through. You've always looked at your life as a story, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you always have to have, be able to tell a good story based off of what you do. So help me out here. He's like, well, let's walk through the story. So let's say you do kill somebody else. You get arrested. You go to jail. And that's the end of your story. 
Okay. All right, cool. So if you kill yourself, then you're dead and that's the end of your story. And it's like, yeah, he goes, is that how you want your story to end? Wow. And I said, no, actually, it's not. And he's like, okay, cool. So you're cool? Cool. And then we hung up. And then like a day later, he called me and said, hey, now that you're kind of chilled out a bit, um, I think maybe you might want to talk to somebody. Like, because wow. <laughs> he's like, that I, 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 I only realized years later, and I mean decades later, how terrified he was when I called him. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. Every what? decision I've ever made has made perfect sense at the time I made it, because I like to think of myself as a logical person. Yeah. I actually overanalyze to try and combat the fact that I have a mood disorder. Mm. And so I try to be hyperlogical. I can't see sometimes when my logic is flawed because I'm getting bad data from my brain. And so yes. my dad, total lack of reaction, just he made me think it through. He was like, is that how you want your story to end? So I, when I got the semicolon, it was all about the fact that moving to New Mexico was not the end of my story. It was the start of another chapter. And so I got the semicolon as a reminder of dad's thing. And then, wow. I, then I was told, I was like, oh, there's this whole movement about the semicolon. <laughs> Wait, what's the semicolon movement? Wait. Oh, you, uh, this is a, a thing from a couple years back. And it's, uh, it's about suicide um, awareness and sui oh. suicide survivors would get a tattooed uh, of a semicolon saying that their story didn't end. Um, Whoa. And, and and that and some family members and caregivers, you know, who've also been through the thick of it. So it's kind of like the mental health, one of the mental health recovery tattoos. Wow. Um, and so it just happened to coincide. And I'd heard of the semicolon movement, but I was just like the semicolon was the only thing that was made sense because of dad's thing with me. Uh, wow. And so and the Zia, of course, is the fact that uh, everything you talked about me doing, the art, the um advocacy, the authorship, the speaking, the, the being on the NAMI national board and all that crap. Sorry, NAMI. I really love you. Uh, the, uh, Donate to NAMI. Uh. Uh, is, um, is that all started when I was 35 and I had to start my life over by moving to New Mexico. So wow. That's why it's in the Zia, which is our state symbol. Oh, that's... That's amazing. That's a great tattoo. Mine was just like, I talk too fast and I hold a microphone. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a no. It's very, it's so, all of my tattoos are very uh, spur of the moment. Interesting choices. But my mom used to say when, when I did my first speeches, my parents would come to them. And my mom used to do the symbol of like, uh, it was supposed to say, uh, I'm at 93 RPM, which means I'm, spe I'm speaking too quickly, that the record player is spinning too fast. Uh, <laughs> it looks like and, wrap it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but she was saying she would be mouthing 73 RPM. She goes, 73 RPM, oh my which God, is just slow your record player so down cute. so that we can understand you. Uh, so. uh, I deeply relate to that. Um, <laughs> I love it. Uh, oh, so on this story, so that happened right before you got treatment, got it, your diagnosis. Yeah, I had fully engaged in my alcoholism at that point. I, okay. Uh, well, okay, let's see. I got my diagnosis when I was 22. Um, and the process of accepting it was 13 years where I was Oof. like, so here's the thing. I, again, with the lucky, 
I was born with some pretty severe respiratory issues as a kid. So I spent a lot of parts of my time being trucked back and forth to the emergency room and oxygen tents and being sick all the time because my parents moved to a dusty old house and tried to kill me apparently. And, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, but the thing was, I was used to having pretty serious medical issues. So when I was told I had bipolar disorder, it didn't cross my mind that that was a big deal. It was just another thing that I had to manage. So I was yeah. like, okay, cool. So, uh, and I found out later that that was a very lucky way to look at it, that that was not a common way to look at it mm. for people. And, um, so, but, saying, yeah, okay, I have bipolar disorder and fully understanding and accepting what that meant in my life was a very long, slow process. And so, um, you know, I had to, it took me 13 years to realize that I was self-medicating with alcohol, mm. that I probably shouldn't be drinking close to a gallon of alcohol a day. That's probably bad. Not I'm lucky in the fact that I was descended from many alcoholics. So I had no, like no DTs when I stopped. I just stopped. I woke up one day and said, this is a bad idea and stopped. And I didn't find out until years later that that could have killed me. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> Huh. Yeah, well, my sobriety date's easy to remember as March, uh, March 18th, because that was the first day I was arrested. Uh, right after so, St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> yes, exactly. I was arrested after St. Patrick's Day. And while I was in the detention facility, went, you know, I'm getting an escalating series of trouble because I'm dr drunk most of the time. What if I stopped? Like, what if I just stopped drinking today? And, and, and I did. And then I found out years later that that could have killed me. Um, wow. Yeah. I grew up with, uh, well, the like later half of my childhood recovered alcoholics. So, so much of that information was drilled in my brain that it's funny to think of someone going, you know, it seems like when I drink trouble happens, <laughs> like this very <laughs> honest thought of, Perhaps it's the alcohol. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Like, all right. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start this off by saying I'm a moron. I'm an idiot. And part of the reason why I'm an idiot is because <laughs> I'm technically not. I, you know, they, my parents had a lot of intelligence tests done on me when I was getting my psychological profiles done over yeah. and over again as a kid. And it said that, hey, what do you know? This kid's above average intelligence. But I had parents who told me straight up, Everyone in your family's an alcoholic. Like my brother and I both had the conversation when we were like 10. Everyone in your family's an alcoholic. That means you probably are too. And I was like, okay, yes, here are the warning signs. Okay. Um, and all that stuff. And my parents were like the two non-drinkers out of this whole family. And yet, as I was getting older and drinking more and more, I was like, well, that's a warning sign and just walked right past it. <laughs> and, and, and for like two or three years, it was an open joke amongst my friends that I was a functional alcoholic uh, because I could drink a ridiculous amount of stuff and go to work and be good at my job, which did not involve healthcare in any way, shape or form and was entirely based in information technology. Just throwing that out there. So nobody... Yeah. Anyway, so the <laughs> You're like, this was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, this was a long time ago. Anyway, but I would but I found that a the line between functional alcoholic and non-functional alcoholic is very blurry and mm -hmm. you tend to cross it well before you think you do. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so, yeah, I had been kind of engaging with the conversation about being an alcoholic for a couple of years. But then when I got arrested, I was like, 
yeah, no, this is probably a problem. And so, uh, but it didn't fix my life either because I had to get arrested again to realize that maybe I should get that divorce after all. So, uh, yeah, well, right around the time my wife stuck a kitchen knife in me. Uh, it was like, maybe she doesn't want to be married to me anymore. I think and, maybe this isn't working out. Yeah. Oh, goodness. So I also remember the date of my last tetanus shot. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did. Oh, man. Well, maybe I don't wish I did. That's a- <laughs> September 16th, 2011. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, sounds like. That was the second day I was arrested. There so, was a yeah. lot going on. <laughs> oh, and is that the point that. So the second date you were arrested, were you already sober at that point? But yeah, I'd been sober for, uh, was it from June till September, okay. but there's, there's a difference between, so I was drinking part and parcel because I was managing my mental health condition. That's a thing that I've learned that people who use, we're managing something we're, we're using for a reason. It fills a need. I'm glad you uh, said this. Cause I was going to ask you if you felt like that's what was going on. Um, Hey, when I abused opioids, it was entirely because I had broken my back in two places. And by abusing the opioids, which were prescription, I might add, because again, economic privilege, I didn't have a, I didn't have an opioid problem. I had a prescription. Uh, The doctor uh, said it's okay. (laughs) And uh, so that's the thing. So when I was abusing opioids for the very brief period of time I did, it was entirely because I was in a lot of pain. So when I was drinking, it took me years to realize this, but A, I hated myself and I wanted to punish myself, which is why I found somebody who hated me almost as much as I did and let her treat me like crap. Uh, uh, and I'm then, sorry. well, no, I, to be fair, before everybody's like, hey, he's a victim and a martyr. No, I had earned my self-loathing. <laughs> I, I had been kind of a shitbag for a number of years. So, um, and, uh, but like, so I was numbing that pain. I was more importantly, I found out even now, as I still have trouble watching movies occasionally, I was slowing my brain down so that I, I could actually focus on things. Yeah. And be present in the moment because alcohol dulled my senses so I could focus. Yeah. Uh, because we had learned that I couldn't take ADHD meds by that point. Yes. Yeah, so, oh, uh, and, and I have ADD. I have ADHD. And yeah. Oh, yeah. When you, that feeling of your brain just firing off a million, it will it will drive you to feel like you need something. It's like, it becomes unmanageable. So, so I drank to think I drank so I could think uh, and I, and I drank to numb, you know, when you have ADD and you happen to be a musician, grow up in a musician family. So you have an ear like that's pretty sensitive. The world is very overwhelming. Like oh, yeah. just constantly getting bombarded with information, which is why I go, don't go. When you said, Hey, do you have headphones and a mic? And I was like, I got you covered because I never, <laughs> I never, I, I live in an apartment by myself yet. I wear headphones most of the day yeah. because the world is too loud for me and it's too, um, overstimulating overload. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that's why I used to drink. I drank to numb myself. And once I realized that, I was like, oh, crap, that's a problem. So, um, yeah, like, that's why when I did AA for a while, I, I, I walked into AA and they were like, oh, we're, we're worried we're going to drink again. We're addicted to alcohol. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's the thing you guys are dealing with. I was self-medicating, so I think I need to find a group that actually helps me manage my mental health issue. Interesting uh, that you went, oh, I, but I had a thing I know I was managing. I need to figure out how to work with that and not drink. But it wasn't like... You weren't 
craving the drink in the sense of the way some alcoholics just need. Yeah. I mean, the only time I ever crave alcohol now, and I'm nine years sober woo-hoo, and, um, Yay, and congrats. yeah. And, um, the, the running joke in the AA community here is that I literally only show up once a year to get my chip because I collect things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, Hey y'all. Uh, and so I, but anyway, the, um, you know, I, I realized that I was self-medicating. And so I was like, I need to manage my mental health. And the only time I ever even think about having a drink is when my mental health is starting to spiral. Like I can, I can actually tell the stressors are happening with the mental health and suddenly I want a drink. And then I'm like, oh yeah, that's because I, I'm trying to manage that same problem again. So let's, let's go back and focus on that. Yeah. Wow. I... That's just so the one time I had, I would say like my biggest mental health crisis. It was, I was in like a a downward spiral where I was very suicidal. I don't know how to say it without being frank about it. I don't know if I have the language, but I remember cause I, I've always been a social drinker, but just, you know, I'll have a drink at a party, whatever, maybe got a little crazy in college, but that was the extent of it. And having alcoholism in my family, it was something that I saw, you know, from a young age. Like as that was the week leading up to when it got very bad, I remember going into a gas station to get gas and grabbing like a case of beer specifically, like I'm going to drink this just because I think it'll turn my brain off. And then as I had that thought, I was like, oh no, that's not that. That seems like a real slippery slope. <laughs> but then I, I didn't at the time have the, either the tools or was, or just the, the energy to, you know, figure out another process. So I was, I just, you know, was like, I guess I'll just white knuckle through it, which. Whew. Yeah. It's just not, not always the best way. And yeah. you know, everybody's recovery journey is different. Like we actually have a very particular day. We remember where I switched from being a heavy drinker to being a full blown alcoholic. And it was after a breakup with a girlfriend and I mm. went and blew my entire paycheck on booze. And then I called my friends and said, Hey, I'm going to spend the weekend emptying this case of booze. I would love company while I did it. So I didn't drink it all by myself, but I'm totally willing to. And a lot of my friends thought I was kidding and didn't realize that I was completely serious. And that's exactly what I did. I went home and I, cleared about $400 worth of alcohol over the course of that weekend. Hot damn. Uh, and that became my new normal. Like that Ugh. just became like my, my average intake. And I was about 24 at the time. And Our so, person. yeah. And it was because like, like I said, I, I had, I had started that actually that weekend was the self-loathing switch because like I said, I, I, I hurt some people before I realized that I was hurting people. Yeah. Uh, and when I, when I, when I realized that, oh, you know, everybody thinks they're the hero of their own story. But one day I woke up and realized that I was the villain and I woke up and I broke every mirror in my house, you know, mirrors, yeah. mirrors, half a bad got a thing. Got a thing. <laughs> so I, I broke every mirror in my apartment, which by the way, not a security deposit that I got back. And, um, and, uh, and then I drank my, I tried to drink myself to death that weekend and damn it, I survived. So oh, I just that kept, feeling of waking up like, ah! <laughs> so and then you can my friends now some of the friends that I have from back then they'll even say like you could see 
I started immediately dating ever more abusive women because I was uh. looking for someone to punish me for being the shitbag that I had been. Yeah, like validating your self-loathing by... That's so interesting to hear because... I I hate that I keep being like one time this happened to me, but I have a relationship that I always try to explain to people where it's like, no, I wasn't happy entering it. Like, I don't know that. I don't think I ever liked that person, but I didn't like who I was. And I've never, I just haven't happened to have a conversation with someone who's ever said it. So I'm like, ah, you're making things clear for me. I'm like, yes, self-loathing. uh-huh. By the time I married my second wife, which, by the way, just for anybody who might be listening, don't make any big life decisions when you might be having a manic episode. So, like, if you marry a woman after, like, two and a half months, you might want to think about it. Uh, but, uh. Uh, yeah, so, like, I this relationship was doomed from the start, and I knew it, and I saw it, and I ran headlong into it. And I even had friends who, like, were like, yo, Micah, we think this is an abusive cycle that you're in. Why don't you stay with us for a while? And I did, and then I'd go back. Uh, uh, you know, after and and much like abuse cycles, it became a cycle. And yeah. uh, being the big, she was she was four feet tall, and I'm six feet tall, and uh, a person of color, and and a person with a serious mental health condition that's well documented. So when she attacked me and I attacked back, content warning and trigger for people. By yeah, the way. yeah, I, and uh, I will include that at the beginning too. Just please case, do because yeah. story goes places. Yeah. Uh, you know, and she attacked back and I attacked back. Uh, I was like, oh, this is bad. You're like, oh, uh, this is only going to come down on me. Yeah, well, it did. That's the thing. Like when yeah. the cop, I, I, I said, let's go home and let's call the cops and try and sort this situation out. And I got taken away. And, um, and, and I hated myself so much for the fact that I retaliated that I let her blackmail me, <sighs> uh, sexually assault me, um, just abuse me for six more months until she stabbed me. And that was when I woke up and was like, oh, this is going to end one of three ways. I'm going to die because she's going to kill me. Uh, I'm going to kill her in re- or to protect myself or otherwise like our, our violence is cycle is escalating. So yeah. I'm, I'm either going to be killed by her because, well, there's currently a kitchen knife sticking out of me uh, or I'm going to kill her. Mm. Or I'm going to kill her and go to jail and kill myself because yeah. like that's because I was very clear about the fact that I was never going back. Yeah. Uh, and um, and so that's why my parents like it is well understood by my family and friends and anybody who knows me that I would have been dead in 30 to 60 days if I had not been smuggled to New Mexico. Wow. Uh, and again, my legal shit is taken care of, y'all. We're clear now. I'm allowed to find Anyone's listening? <laughs> if anybody's listening. Uh, so, but, uh, but yeah, it was a pretty dark time. And I'm lucky in the fact that I had parents who took the, I'm going to plug for NAMI now. Yeah. Uh, parents who took the NAMI family to family class, which is a education program that taught by family members and caregivers to people. Go. That includes the free hour of Micah Pearson. You want the rest, don't you? Yeah, you do. How are you, are you fucking kidding? Of course you do. Head over to patreon.com slash ignorance is blessed. There's a link in the show notes as well as links to Micah's work. So go get his book. Go check out his art. Uh, a link to NAMI. There's links to our Facebook page, uh, Twitter. We've got a Facebook group, blah, 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 blah. Check it all out. 
And if you like the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes if you haven't already or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends because everyone's a little bit ignorant sometimes. Big, big thank you to John, Eric, Gene, Greg, Kathy, and Terry, exclusive members of the League of Extraordinary Idiots on Patreon. They are top supporters. I love them. They keep the episodes flowing and honestly, uh, looking forward to our next hang uh, over on the, uh, the old Zoom crappy hour. Uh, if you want to join the League of Extraordinary Idiots and be part of our cool hangouts, allegedly get postcards from me, although I haven't been on the road because life came to a screeching halt and I'm having an identity crisis, so please bear with me. Uh, head over to patreon.com slash ignorance is blessed. And also to get the rest of the hour, you know, you want it. There's a whole extra hour, you guys. Uh, plus, it was a long conversation. It was, all of it was riveting. So this is definitely one uh, to, uh, if you've been thinking about getting on board over there, I think now is a good time. And you can get on board for as little as a dollar a month, which is uh, so exciting. And if you're still employed, which many of us aren't, but thankfully some of us are, no, dollar's not too much. I think give me a dollar a month. If everyone gave me a dollar a month, I would probably stop having an identity crisis. I'll tell you that. I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a podcaster. <laughs> uh, that's what I do. And, and people enjoy my work. Uh, cause that'd be a lot, a lot of dollars. Um, anyway, follow at blessed podcast on Twitter or ignorance is blessed on Instagram. If you want to put a face to the voices you're hearing uh, on the podcast. If there's other ones in your head, I can't help you with that. But um, that's a way to keep in touch. We've also got a Facebook group called Ignorance's Hashtag Blessed Idiots where you can go post your ignorant things, start a conversation, you know, maybe about something that some people might disagree with, get into a discussion, have a friendly debate, learn a little, maybe change your perspective, learn some other perspectives, but don't change yours. You know, slot an opportunity for people who, like me, get horny to learn. Please keep in mind that no guest is or claims to be a representative for every person who has a similar identity. They're just one person sharing their own experience and ideas to help us get a peek at how things look from their situation and their situated position in the world. If you have any additional questions for Micah or you want to suggest another guest or another type of guest, maybe you don't know someone who's, uh, I don't know, a Jewish carpenter, but you're like, wouldn't that be cool? Where are the Jewish carpenters? Uh, let me know. Best way to do that is through the Facebook group. Uh, and I, I'll do my best to deliver deliver those to you as much as I can. Keep giving suggestions and keep asking questions. The more we ask, the more we learn, the more we know. And the more we know, the more we can look down on others who aren't as smart as we are. And isn't that the point? Thank you for listening and thank you for being patient with my ignorance. See you soon, idiots. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.